Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the truths that we've been singing about. Uh, we thank you for focusing our minds again upon the cross uh, where Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you for your amazing grace. And, uh, and we thank you for our church. We thank you for the possibility of gathering together to, to meet, uh, to care for one another, to, to sing your praises corporately. And, uh, and to learn together from the Bible. We thank you for it. We thank you for the help of your spirit. And we just pray now as we turn to this amazing chapter that you would uh, be, be at work in our hearts, that you would illuminate what we read and think about, and, uh, and that these uh, truths and these words would, would inspire and stimulate our hearts to praise you uh, as the awesome God that you are. And uh, so we ask for your help, and I uh, pray that you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said, we're going to think about over the next few weeks some of the great songs in the Bible. And we're going to begin with the very first one. And I want to begin with a question. What would you say uh, is the greatest event that has ever occurred in the history of the world? There's a good question for a cold January morning. The greatest event that has ever happened in the history of the world. Uh, I was looking on the internet and some people have suggested all sorts of different things. Uh, I suppose inventions would be one thing, wouldn't it? The invention of the wheel uh, was, a, was a thing that has changed history. The, someone else said the invention of the atom bomb, the invention of the TV. Other people talked about different famous people that have been born in history who have changed dramatically the course of history. Um, Richard Nixon was a president of the United States from January 1969 to 1974, five years as president. And during the very early stages of his presidency, it was a legacy from the Kennedy, Kennedy era, on July the 20th, 1969, the Apollo 11 lunar module named Eagle landed on the moon in an area of the moon called the Sea of Tranquility. I'm not old enough to remember um, the, that, that uh, event seen the pictures on TV uh, the pilot said the eagle has landed as the uh, thing touched down the moon on the 24th of July they returned to planet earth and as the module splashed on the Pacific Ocean Time magazine said this Richard Nixon could scarcely contain his exuberance as he waited on the flag bridge of the carrier Hornet for the Pacific splashed on. Waving his arms, he exclaimed, Oh boy! Oh boy! You can imagine Richard Nixon, he, he was known for his kind of down-to-earthness. Later, as the astronauts were in their sort of quarantine chamber, there's Richard Nixon. He was talking to them through the, the glass and this is what Nixon later said. I was there to welcome the astronauts home. When I talked with them through the window of their quarantine chamber, it was hard to contain my enthusiasm or my awe at the thought that these three men on the other side of the glass had just returned from the moon. I said impulsively, this is the greatest week in the history of the world since creation. What a, what a thing for Richard Nixon to say. This is the greatest event in the history of the world 
since creation. Apparently, his close friend, the preacher, Billy Graham, told him off for saying that (laughs) and reminded him privately that the greatest event in history wasn't putting men on the moon, but was the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good on Billy Graham for uh, taking a president to task for that. But prior to those dramatic events, to a Jewish person, if you ask a Jewish person, what is the greatest event in the history of the world? I'm talking about before Jesus was born. What do you think a Jewish person with the Old Testament scriptures in their hands would say the greatest event in the history of the world would be? Well, I think without exception, to a Jewish person, the greatest event pre-Christ in the history of this world would have been, without any shadow of a doubt, the exodus. As As Moses left God's people, a fledgling nation, out of Egypt, miraculously through the Red Sea and through the desert and ultimately to the promised land. They escaped from slavery, oppression in Egypt and by God's mighty hand came out through the Red Sea and to the promised land. We read earlier from Exodus chapter 15. I want you to get the awesome kind of picture, we, we need to kind of make our imaginations work here, don't we? Here are people who are standing on the shore on the other side of the Red Sea having just seen, having just walked through the middle of the sea on dry land. It's a miracle. And as they look back and see Pharaoh's chariots bearing down on them, the waters collapse and thunder down on God's enemy and theirs and as they stand on the shore on the other side I I cannot imagine the sense of terror and awe and yet giddy gladness and joy how awesome an event that must have been and as they stand on the shore Moses leads the people in a song and as they break this must have been the loudest most exuberant and happy song ever sung. It is an incredible, significant, poignant, awesome moment. The song of the sea. The song of Moses. There was a film produced with Steve McQueen in it called The Great Escape. And uh, I won't whistle it for you. You probably know the tune. Um, but this story this epic story really is the original great escape the birth of a nation and the story of the one true awesome living God intervening in his world to set his people free well we've got a lot to get through well how can we do justice to to such a, a chapter in the Bible I've been, really, I've been really looking forward to, uh, to going through this with you. So let's, uh, let's try and break it up. And I want to talk a little bit about poetry first in the Bible. This is the first song in the Bible. 
And uh, I was amazed, I didn't know this, apparently this is actually one of the oldest songs from any ancient civilization that we have recorded for us from posterity. That, that, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? This is one of the oldest songs in existence. Not just in the Bible, but anywhere. That was, that's an astonishing uh, fact. And uh, it's not the first piece of poetry in the Bible. Uh, there are other pieces of poetry. Um, poetry is important to people. And uh, often human beings in all cultures have used poetic language to express uh, heightened uh, emotion at times of uh, either great stress or great victory. Um, the first piece of poetry comes in, in Genesis when Adam wakes up for the first time beside a beautiful woman. And what an appropriate moment to break out in poetry. And, he, and, that, and there it is in, in, uh, in Genesis. There's the self-sufficient poetic boasting of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4 who boasts to his wives of the men he's killed and how mighty and strong and self-sufficient he is. There are two instances of fathers using poetry to bless their children. Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, and Jacob later blessing his 12 sons in Genesis chapter 49. But here, all, all of that is poetry, but here in Exodus chapter 15, the Bible itself specifically says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song. This is poetry set to music. They're singing. It's the very first song written in Hebrew to celebrate this most significant event. Jewish people have celebrated the Passover for thousands of years since this day. This is a very significant event in history. But I want to say to you at the start, and hopefully by the time we get to the end we'll get a sense of the awe of this, this, this story of rescue casts a light over the whole of Bible history and it even casts a light right to the very consummation of history and to heaven itself just turn with me just keep your finger next to this 15 and just turn to Revelation chapter 15 I, I, I just want to underline how important the truths and, and, and the, the issues that are at stake here are in Revelation chapter 15, we're, we're at the end of time. And we've got a little glimpse into heaven. The curtains are drawn and we can peer through the window and away and we can see into the future. And here in verse 2, John sees another sea. Not the Red Sea. I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea on the shore of that future sea those who had been victorious there's a victory here victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name here are another group of people standing on the shore of a great sea having seen and experienced a great victory over an even more powerful enemy than Pharaoh and they held harps given them by God and what did they do? they sang the song of who? Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. 
all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Isn't that interesting? That this story, right at the very beginning of the Bible, is echoed right at the end of time by another group standing by a sea who witnessed a great victory over a powerful enemy. Well, we're in no doubt that this is important now. And uh, we'll come back to the connection with Jesus towards the end. I think uh, it's worth saying about poetry here that often uh, poetry can be an aid to memory. Um, Some people have better memories than others, don't they? And uh, it's, it's significant, isn't it? When you think about ancient cultures, most ancient cultures that we know will have songs, stories of heroism, legendary exploits, great battles, the birth of an empire. And um, what, what often these songs will contain themes that, that become embedded in that culture. And, uh, and, the, and the reason that they're kind of committed to song is so that they're memorable. So that people don't forget uh, the things that happened. But this song is, is more than that. This is more than an ancient song that's been sung down the years of history by generations. This is part of the Bible. This is part of God's inspired word. And so it contains themes that are not just an aid to human memory, but that it contains themes that are timeless and hugely significant. And this first song in the Bible is, is just one part of that unfolding story of God's involvement in his word. So just uh, look with me uh, practically then. It's very deliberate in its structure. It's, um, we don't have the Hebrew because we, we, we don't read Hebrew. But in the English it very helpfully splits into the, uh, the sections. There are, there are a number of sections here, five altogether. Uh, verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 8 and verses 9 to 10 really say the same thing in three different ways and that's very common in poetry uh, the kind of emphasis of saying the same thing in a slightly different way to drive it home uh, describing what God has done when we get to verse 11 and 12 uh, Moses begins to rejoice not just in describing what God has done but he, he begins to exult in what God is like. And then, very interestingly, the last section in verse 13, the, the image changes from God being a warrior to being a shepherd. And the idea in the last section is, God has won a great victory for his people, and now he will continue to lead us. So there's a sense of hope in the last section. This is what God has done. This is how great he is. And we can look forward with confidence. So there's a purpose here. And uh, here, very very quickly, here, here they are. This song describes what God has done. It declares what God is like. It ascribes all the glory and praise to God. And there's a sense that the song encourages the people to look forward with hope and confidence. That's, uh, that's an amazing thing, isn't it, for a song to do all of those things. I don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to say as an aside, we've been thinking about our music and our singing in church. 
this whole song shines an interesting light on the whole subject of worship and singing. And I think when we break it down in the way that we have on the screen there, here are four great tests of what a great song should contain. Um, here, here, here is something to evaluate uh, our worship against. Do, do our songs speak of what God has done? Do our songs declare what he is like? Do they ascribe all the glory and praise to him? And do they encourage us to look forward with a sense of confidence and hope in what God will do? So much of our experience humanly is very self-centered, isn't it? We're very often preoccupied with, with me, myself and I. And it's good for our songs to be not all about me, but all about him. And this song, it does exactly that, doesn't it? It is about them. But it's an exuberant song of praise and it's really all about God. I love the way that the women, uh, towards the end of the verses that Rob read to us, uh, Moses' sister Miriam takes a tambourine in her hand and all the women follow her with tambourines and dancing. Uh, there's no copyright on this song she, she, she repeats the chorus sing to the Lord for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider has hurled into the sea can you imagine the exuberance of the scene uh, a song that has great deep and weighty content and then this idea of repetition and the, the, the music and the tambourines and the dancing on its own I don't think the chorus that they sung would have meant a great deal but when you combine the two, the content and the repetition, driving home the truths that have been sung about in, in the main song, and it, it combines to make a beautiful whole. And it's an inspiring song. Well, I want to, um, we, we said when we read this, that some of you will be familiar with this. And, uh, but some of you may not appreciate all the history that, that goes into this so I just want to give you one slide that's a, a background and we'll, we'll leave this up there as, as we rattle through this um, here, here's, here's what I want to do to pick up on the central idea of the song and then I want to talk with you a little bit about the backdrop and the prelude to this song promises being fulfilled suffering being endured a delivery being raised up and then I want to talk a little bit about the real conflict and the whole issue of God proving that he is the living God over and against the gods of Egypt and then towards the end I want to just link this to Jesus and think about the gospel okay so I'm going to, I'll leave that there there's no other slides but we'll use that as a kind of basis so let's pick up on a central idea first the very first clause in this song Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord I will sing to the Lord why? for he is highly exalted. Miriam picks up that same theme in the chorus that I'm sure they repeated over and over and over again. Sing to the Lord. Why? Because he is highly exalted. The central theme in this song is God. It's the same in the remix in Revelation 15. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. 
The phrase here, highly exalted, really means, literally, God is gloriously glorious. He is brilliantly brilliant. He is fantastically fantastic. You get the idea. The sense is of stretching language to describe how high and lofty and amazing God is. To encapsulate his awesome majesty. It it is a problem when we're using words, isn't it? And this is the whole point of the story, really. God is invisible. And he is also infinitely beyond our understanding and even our imagination. How would you communicate with human beings if you were God Almighty? How would you show them something of what you are like? Well, what God has done in his great wisdom is to act out his purposes in history. This story involves people and countries and all sorts of details, but the primary thing that's going on here is that God is revealing himself. This is what I am like. Look at what I have done. Look at what I am like. There's been a lot of uh, historical criticism of pastors like this. And this this truth is why I think liberal theologians get this all wrong and back to front. Because what they do is they try to suggest that this is a a kind of an embellishment. This is written much later by people trying to embellish things that happened as they look back. This is made up by men to invent theology. But nothing could be further from the truth. This isn't human beings inventing God in their own image. This is God himself taking the initiative and doing things that powerfully define who he is and what he's like. This isn't men inventing God. This is God revealing himself. There's a big difference there, isn't there? And uh, let let me say this. We're going to cover a lot of stuff. If, If you forget everything I say this morning which you probably will Um, it's important I don't forget (laughs) because I'm speaking if you forget everything I said this morning remember this one truth that God does everything he does to demonstrate and prove and display his own great worth and beauty and glory and the reason he does that is so that we might rise up in true spiritual worship as we get a glimpse of his awesome power and glory and majesty. The reason I say that is because I think this will help me and you as we read the Bible because what happens often is we come to the Bible totally preoccupied with our own sense of neediness, don't we? We come to the Bible and we think all about me what does it say to me what does this mean for me and sometimes I think we need to stop and remember that the thing that will unlock the Bible is the realisation that it is actually all about him and that when we see something of him in the Bible that is the thing that will satisfy our neediness anyway 
So it's important for us to start there. This is the big theme. He is, is highly exalted. And everything that's going on here in this story is all about proving that one thing. And exactly that happens in this chapter as God's people's hearts rise up both in terror and awe and in gladness and joy at what God is doing. Well, let's quickly look at the backdrop then. And uh, just three quick headings under this. What's the prelude to this story? Here's a group of people who've miraculously come through a sea. Their enemies have been drawn behind them and they stand on the shore to sing this song. What has been going on before this? This is kind of both a new beginning and the final chapter in a story that's already been going on. Well, promises are being fulfilled here. Many years before this story, God came God came to a pagan man in a faraway country and said to him, Leave your country Leave your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. His name was Abraham. And God took the initiative and called this one man out of a pagan culture and made incredible promises to him that would shape the future history of the world. Abraham had a son called Isaac and a grandson called Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and they are possibly the most dysfunctional family in the whole Bible. But they are God's people. One of Jacob's sons was called Joseph. And you know the story, Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat. Joseph eventually and the whole family travelled down to Egypt in a time of famine. And by God's grace uh, were, were greatly welcomed by the regime there. It's very significant. I just want to pause and reflect on this. It's very significant that prior to this story of God's people going down into Egypt and being rescued through the Red Sea, it's very significant that Abraham, in his life as an individual, went down to Egypt and made a dodge dinner of his ill-advised trip during the famine into Egypt. He thought it would be clever to pimp his wife out so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. And God rescued him and brought him home. Later, Joseph and the whole family travel down to Egypt because there was a famine. His brothers sold him originally as a slave. He finds himself in prison. But again, God steps in and intervenes and brings him out of prison and uses the whole episode to save this strange, dysfunctional family. God has been foreshadowing what's going to happen here already in the life of his people. Abraham was rescued in Egypt. Joseph is rescued in Egypt. And now 
his fledgling nation of people are rescued from Egypt. But the other significant promise that God makes to Abraham was that his descendants would possess the land of the heathen Canaanites. And one day, it would all work out for them. Just turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. Just want to underline this idea of promises. Genesis 15 is, a, is another very profound chapter. And uh, page 16 in the Red Church Bibles. And God appears to this man, Abraham. This is a long time before the Exodus. And this is what God says to Abraham many years before. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What I want to underline there is that God made a very specific promise to Abraham that his future descendants would be enslaved as strangers in a foreign country and then God would bring them out to the very land that Abraham was in, which was Canaan. So that's the prelude to this story. Promises here, God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. So we've got that idea. So the, it's important to recognise that the backdrop to the story, this is not random history. This is not things just happening. God has planned this in every detail. He is the sovereign Lord who is highly exalted. And he has his finger right on the pulse. This is all part of his plan. The second thing that we saw there is that people were suffering. Jacob and all of his sons moved to live in the northeastern part of Egypt in an area called Goshen. Very fertile land. Exodus chapter 1 tells us that there were 70 people in this little family all together who lived in Goshen. But obviously Jacob died. Later Joseph dies. All the brothers die. The Pharaoh who had welcomed them into Goshen had died and was forgotten. And this family began to multiply and their hearts grew cold. They forgot all about God. They began to feel comfortable in Egypt. Some of them even began to worship the gods of Egypt. But as their hearts got colder, the regime got harder and harsher. In Exodus chapter 1, the new Pharaoh later says, these Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. What would happen if a war broke out and all these Israelites sided with the enemy? It would be fatal. We're going to have to sort this out. And there's a number of things that... Uh, the Pharaoh does, you, you know the story perhaps. First of all, 
they began to oppress the Israelites and enslave them. And they employed them to make bricks from straw. Then the Pharaoh uh, said to the Egyptian midwives, when the Hebrew ladies give birth, if it's a boy, abort it, murder it. If it's a girl, let it live. But the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they said to Pharaoh, the Jewish women, they're very vigorous. They give birth before we get there. There's nothing we can do about it. And God rewarded them for their faithfulness. Pharaoh was angry. And he thought, well, if I can't kill them at birth, let's kill them while they're toddlers. And he ordered, not then the Egyptian midwives, but the Egyptian people themselves, to throw into the river Nile any Jewish male toddlers. What an awful time that must have been. And by this means, the, the, the regime thought, we're, we're going to snuff these people out gradually by killing all their males. Here's a people that are precious to God and yet suffering, oppressed and in slavery. But the third problem to this story is that God is raising a deliverer up. I want you to get this idea as well. Right into the middle of this oppression, a baby is born and his parents, very cannily, obey technically the command of Pharaoh to throw him into the river Nile, but they very helpfully encase him in a basket so that he won't sink and drown. And in faith, they push the basket off into the river Nile and in God's providence, who should find the basket? But the very daughter of Pharaoh. And she opens the basket and her heart melts. How on earth could you kill a little baby like that? And she defies her own father and brings the child into the palace. More than that, by God's providence, she hires the mother of the child to be the nanny. And God has arranged it all to raise up a deliverer. Do you know what the name was that they gave this baby? You do. The name was Moses. Do you know what that name means? It means brought out. Isn't that incredible? Because she lifted him out of the water, she called him Moses. Little did she know that he was the very means that God would use one day to bring his people out, not out of the water of the Nile, but through the water of the Red Sea and out of Egypt. It's amazing. God appeared to this man later, much later, and he said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. It is time to bring them out and to their own land. Now go, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. Well, there's some background. Promises fulfilled, a people who are suffering, and a deliverer who's raised up. What about the conflict? I just want to emphasise this as well. This, this whole story is framed in the book of Exodus as a conflict between the living God 
and the many false gods of Egypt. This is a fight. This is a boxing match between false gods and the true God. Let me um, just show you a couple of things. Just go back with me to Exodus chapter 5 because the first thing that happens in Exodus chapter 5 when Moses goes to Pharaoh very reluctantly we might add and says this is what the Lord the God of Israel says let my people go this to Pharaoh says who? <laughs> who? who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? do you not know who I am? this is Egypt man we have our own gods and I don't know your gods I will not let them go I know nothing about your God. What did you say his name was again? Pharaoh, in his arrogance, defies not just Moses, but the Lord God Almighty. Just uh, flip with me through to Exodus chapter 12. And um, let's hear God's commentary on this. At the very end of the ten plagues that God pronounced on Egypt, this is what God says in verse 12, Exodus 12, verse 12. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on who? On all the gods of Egypt. Why? Because I am the Lord this is a boxing match make no mistake it says in the song Moses sang the Lord is a warrior that is not an image that we often have in our mind when we think of God he is getting his boxing gloves on to show that he is highly exalted and that these other gods are pathetic in comparison to him. Their most basic problem in Egypt is that they are building their whole lives, their whole nation around any and every kind of God except the one true living God. Now, I, I think that this might be a bit distant for us this is three and a half thousand years ago. Egypt and gods and hieroglyphics and pyramids and all that kind of... These people worshipping pagan idols. What's that got to do with us in Rotherham in 2011? Now, isn't it? Well, we don't worship Egyptian gods. Actually, though, we are a more sophisticated version of the same kind of idea, though, aren't we? that we will build our lives around anything and everything apart from God, our Creator. Actually, the truth is that we are all worshippers of something. And the things that our hearts love and follow and cherish they are the things that we live for and they are the things that reveal what our idols really are. 
This conflict is a boxing match between the living God and false gods that can do no good. And there's something about this conflict that's intended to teach God's people a lesson as well as teaching the Egyptians a lesson. The people of God needed to learn that their God is the living God. And never, never to forget that and to become unfaithful to him. There's a very famous passage in Joshua 24. Some people have it up on a plaque in their house. When Joshua warns the people before they go into the promised land, he, he says to them, Do not be unfaithful to the Lord your God. Choose you this day who you will serve. Don't worship the false gods of Egypt or Canaan. Worship the Lord your God. And he very famously says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What an inspiring leader he was. Well, there's a great conflict here. The other thing I want to draw up for you is that sometimes when we have arguments and debates or conflict, there, there is a thing called setting up a straw man. Do you know that phrase? Where the one arguing picks the weakest possible opposition, sets it up, and then proceeds to demolish it to make himself look really fantastic and great. School bullies do that, don't they? You know, they'll, they'll pick on who they think can't fight them to make themselves look as though they're strong until someone bigger stands up to them. What God is doing here is seeking to show beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the highly exalted one. And part of God's strategy here is not to set up a straw man, but to defeat the enemy when they give their best. He is in no hurry. God doesn't just jump in and break Pharaoh's neck at the first opportunity. God's whole strategy is much, much bigger than that. God loves to wait until the situation is so desperate and the enemy is so strong and then he comes in and does what we might call a class A miracle so that no one is in any doubt that God did it. And it happens here with Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and it makes things worse. Pharaoh says, you lot are just lazy. I'm not letting you go. It's because you don't want to make bricks. In fact, you can make the same number and I'm not going to give you any straw. And the people come to Moses and said, Moses, what are you playing at? You should have kept your mouth shut. You've gone to Pharaoh and you've made our whole slavery and oppression worse. And God says to Moses, listen, I promised Abraham and I care for you. I will deliver every single one of you. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That's what it's all about from God's perspective. This is a contest with only one winner. And the Red Sea itself is an interesting thing, you know, because Exodus, just, just on the previous chapter, Exodus 14, and um, let me just get the verse uh, right for you. Exodus 13, sorry, and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, even though that was shorter. Let me, let me just show you this on a map. That's not a great map, is it? Because it's so light. This is uh, Sinai. And Egypt and Goshen is in the top left corner there. 
the quickest way to get to the promised land is to just go along the coast. It was known as the way of the king. God could have led them that way. That would have been quick. They'd have been there in ten minutes. Well, not quite ten minutes. They had to walk. But what God actually did was led them south through Goshen down to the Red Sea. Why does God do that? Because Pharaoh has an opportunity to change his mind and as the people come to the Red Sea, mountains on one side, sea in front of them, and chariots bearing down on them behind them. What God is doing is letting the enemy do their very best. And the people cry out to Moses and say, you've brought us into the desert to die. Was there not enough cemeteries in Egypt? We could have stayed there and died there. And Moses says to them, stand still and watch what God will do. And Moses, with the enemy bearing down on them, parts the sea with his staff, and the people walk through on dry land. And as the chariots come through into the seabed, the waters thunder down on them, and their enemies are crushed. God is showing them that he is highly exalted. In the song, it says, this whole idea is picked up there in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. God says, give me your best. He's not fighting a straw man, but he's wanting to show that the gods of Egypt are worth nothing compared to him. He was the living and the true God. Well, what can we learn? The central theme here is that God is highly exalted. He conquers his enemies completely and in a devastating way and at the same time saves his people so totally and securely. The evil oppressor is crushed and God's people stand on the opposite shore, safe and free. God is showing that he is the sovereign Lord over nature, over civilization. He's shown that he's reliable and trustworthy and that he keeps his promises that he made in the past to Abraham. He is holy. He loves what is right and hates what is wrong. And look at what it says in the song. I love that part of the song, verse 11. It's Moses and the people sing. What must it have been like to stand on that shore what, what strikes me, I think, is, is you just kind of chew this over in your mind, the sense of terror and awe, and yet the sense of giddiness and joy and freedom. It's, you know, should we be frightened or should we be glad? Actually, it's not one or the other, is it? It's both. God is awesome and we're free. And they sing in verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? He fulfills his promises. He, he saves an oppressed people. He raises up a deliverer and he does it all to teach them that he alone is God. How does this all point to Jesus? Let's just close with a few thoughts on this very quickly physically this points to Jesus because amazingly Jesus went to Egypt 
Matthew tells us in Matthew's Gospel that when the wise men came and brought gifts to Jesus and they told what Herod was planning to kill all the young boys exactly like Pharaoh in Egypt that they fled with Jesus to Egypt and they didn't come back until it was safe in Matthew chapter 1 Matthew tells us that this was to fulfil what the prophet said in the Old Testament that he would call his son out of Egypt it's a perfect mirror of what happens here to a nation so physically this story foreshadows exactly what happened to Jesus personally he went down to Egypt and was brought out I think spiritually you could apply this to Jesus in the sense that Jesus came down from heaven into this world He died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. His exodus was that he defeated death and returned to his kingdom in heaven, having been in this world. But I don't want to dwell on those two ideas. I want to talk about this in a more kind of representative way. Jesus is greater than Moses because he is the one who both leads his people out of slavery into freedom and safety but he is also the sacrifice that makes that possible the exodus was a great escape but there is an even greater escape and the reason I framed it like this let's go back the reason I framed it like this is because all of these ideas mirror the gospel promises have been made that God would send the saviour There are people who are suffering in God's world, not under the slavery and the yoke of an Egyptian empire, but under the miserable yoke of sin and failure. People with no hope, enslaved, defeated, afraid of death and what lies beyond. Unable to conquer the selfishness and the pride that goes on in our human hearts promises have been made a people suffering and God raises up a deliverer his name isn't Moses who was brought out but his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins Billy Graham was right the greatest event in history wasn't putting men on the moon but it was Jesus Christ coming into the world and dying and rising from the dead to save his people from their sins. He is the great rescuer, far more than Moses, who comes to save sinful people and make them into a new nation. And because he saves them, he'll keep them and he'll bring them home. And he does it because he does it he He didn't do this because the Israelites were super duper special people he did it because that's what he's like and he's trying to show that he is highly exalted the gospel the work of Jesus what God has done in this world what God has done in your heart it is about you but it's not primarily about you it is primarily about him displaying his 
own great glory. There's no one like him. We cannot earn it. It's a gift to be received. And listen, if God's people could sink on the shore of that sea, that God had crushed their enemy and brought them out into freedom, how much more can you and I sink as we see that Jesus has come and defeated sin and death and hell and brought his people out into a secure freedom and that he will bring his people home. It isn't about you and me, really. It is about him. Do you sometimes feel that you're hanging on by the skin of your teeth? It isn't about your strength. It wasn't about their strength. It is about his glory. How much more then can we think of what God has done, of what God is like, and ascribe all the glory and praise to him and look forward with confidence as he cares for us and leads us on in our lives and brings us home to glory. What a great first song in the Bible and what a light it sheds on the whole of redemption history and even to heaven itself. Let's pray. Who among the gods is like you? O Lord, who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Our great God and Father, we thank you from our hearts for the truths that we've been reminded of today. We thank you that you are the one true living God. We thank you, Lord, that there is no other God like you. You reign supreme. You are the sovereign Lord, awesome in majesty, fearful in holiness, strong in power. But how we thank you that all of your character and being is exercised to to redeem your people. We thank you that you have sent us a deliverer in the same vein as Moses, Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you that he is a mighty saviour. We thank you that there is no sin too great for him to forgive. We thank you that there is no need too great for him to provide. There is no issue too complicated or too perplexing for him to solve. We thank you for his power and grace and tenderness and wisdom. We thank you this morning that we can lift our hearts and our voices in praise and ascribe the glory to you, our great Father in heaven. We bring our thanks to you. We bring our worship to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.